the National Archives podcast series, Hidden Treasures, Uncovering Maps Among the Files of Government, presented by Andrew James. This talk was recorded on the 12th of December 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. I have one of the best jobs in the world. The National Archives has one of the world's greatest and most diverse holdings of maps, and I get to work with them. Some are colorful and imaginative, like the fictitious Treasure Island. Others are quite plain, like the map which shows the new towns of England and Wales in 1969. But to my mind, all of our maps are treasures. To start with, I'll explain what I mean by the term hidden maps and how maps relate to other records held here in the archives. In the middle bit of the talk, we'll look at about 20 different examples of hidden maps in context. And in the final part, I'll briefly outline some of our work to make hidden maps more accessible and suggest some search strategies for finding maps in the archives. Appropriately for a talk about hidden maps, I have a hidden agenda, which I am now going to reveal. This quote is from a novel called The Grammarian, and it illustrates the point pretty well. How silly those things seemed. Countries and maps and borders, empires and colonies, those absurd constructs of his world, like the winnings of two boys playing a board game, moving toy trains and ships around the perimeter of a square. The novel is very good, and I'm not just saying that because I'm a friend of the author, but I have to disagree respectfully with any suggestion that maps, or indeed other forms of recorded information, are distant from ordinary life. If nothing else, I hope that my talk demonstrates that maps can reflect a broad variety of human experience. For instance, this map shows the division made between the Soviet sector of Berlin and the three Western sectors after the Second World War. These simple lines on the map, or at any rate some of them, mattered an awful lot to a great many people for quite a long time afterwards. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. My opening question is, what is a map? It's actually quite difficult to define what maps are. Actually, this is two Ordnance Survey maps stuck together. This map is hand-drawn and shows a much smaller area. In fact, it's not obvious that map is necessarily the right term to use here. Very large-scale maps are often called plans instead of maps, but there isn't an absolutely set point at which maps become plans. This sketch plan is different again. It's not drawn accurately to scale, but it's still a map or a plan. It's also what I'm calling a hidden map, because it's buried within another record rather than being something separate in its own right but more of this later. This slightly gruesome item shows the murder of Lord Darnley, the second husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. Is this a map? I think so, but not everyone would agree with me. The poster on your right is more abstract than most maps and really quite cartoony, but still recognisably a map of the UK. But is the one on your left also a map or just a drawing? And this poster is a partly cartographic item. It includes an outline map, but the map is only a small part of the whole. And this aerial photograph is not a map. Maps are not photoreal or completely realistic. A map is always an abstraction to some extent. So whether a particular record is an actual map or just something that's a bit map-like is not straightforward. So even assuming that this item is genuinely cartographic and not just a sketch or a drawing, it's not obvious what to call it. Maps of areas of water are properly called charts rather than maps, so I would be tempted to say that this is a chart because it shows part of the Sea Battle of Trafalgar. But its own title calls it a plan, which is probably the most ambiguous of the seven terms I've mentioned. As you've probably worked out, the point that I'm trying to make here is that when you come to search for maps in our catalogues or in the catalogues of other archives and libraries, not everything that's map-like is necessarily going to be 
called a map. At this point, you may well be wondering why anyone wants to look for maps at all. Here are some of the different types of research that people use maps for. Perhaps the most obvious one is local history, because old maps show what places were like in the past. Similarly, you can use maps to help you trace the history of a building, whether that's your own home or somewhere rather grander. People studying military history often use maps to help them understand how campaigns progressed and where and how battles took place. And maps can also help family historians understand where and how their ancestors lived. More generally, old maps help to uncover how landscapes have changed over time, how discoveries and colonisation took place, and how transport networks developed. And some people like looking at maps for their own sake, whether that's for academic research into the history of cartography or simply out of interest. To approach the question from a different angle, what different kinds of information do maps show? It's obvious that maps show places, but there's a bit more to it than that. Maps are also about the relationship between places and people. They show places as the people who made the maps saw those places at the time. Maps also show how people have left their mark on the environment, whether that's by building things like roads, houses and factories, or developing land for farming or mining. The information on many maps helps us to work out who owned or occupied the land and where the boundary was between my land and your land. A lot of maps show information about how people got from place to place by land, sea or air, and some maps were made specifically as aids to navigation. Some maps can tell us a lot about disputes over land and how they were resolved, whether that's a disagreement between neighbouring farms or major warfare. So, ultimately, maps are about understanding places. They are tools for making sense of the world. The map on the screen here represents a battle during the Chinese Revolution of 1911 and 1912, which replaced the emperor with the republic. And here at the bottom edge of the map, we can see the positions of republican forces in relation to the Great Wall of China. In this case, as so often, it's much easier to make sense of places and spatial relationships from a map than from a description in words. These two maps illustrate the relative distribution of Church of England churches and non-conformist places of worship that were licensed for marriages as of 1881. On your left, the map shows those places with the lowest proportion of non-conformist chapels. The one on your right shows places with the highest proportion of non-conformist chapels. Unsurprisingly, there were a lot of nonconformists in parts of Wales, the industrial northwest, and London. It's much more intuitive to grasp this kind of information visually in the form of map. Here at the National Archives, we hold the historical records of governments, and not all of these consist of written words. They also include a variety of other media, from medieval tally sticks to fabric samples to photographs, and even, famously, a dead rat. And of course, we have maps. In many ways, maps here at the National Archives are just like our other records. They document the business of central government. The most common reasons why maps have come to be preserved here are those areas where the value of maps is perhaps most obvious. The impact of the state on the physical environment, warfare and defence, and international relations. But virtually any aspect of government business could involve making or using a map. For instance, many of our maps relate closely to economic activity, particularly to taxation or to the administration of justice. More information about our maps and research guidance on specific topics is available on our website. But here are a few key facts. We don't know exactly how many maps we hold. The traditional estimate is 6 million, which includes architectural drawings as well as maps, plans and charts. But that estimate is now about 15 years out of date and we acquire more maps and other records every year. Date-wise, our earliest map is from the 14th century, and we go up to almost the present day. Most of them date from the 19th and 20th centuries. We hold maps of virtually every part of the world, but we have a lot more of some places, such as former British colonies, than others. Compared to the map collections in most libraries, we have a higher proportion of hand-drawn maps and of printed maps that have been annotated or customised by hand. 
So if you want a standard published map of a particular place at a particular date, you would normally be better off trying map collections in libraries first. This map comes from a file made in 1938 about provision for air raid shelters in the event of a future war. The printed base map is quite ordinary and was probably produced in thousands of copies, but the handwritten annotations, which suggest closing parts of Hove London Underground for use as air raid shelters, mean that it is unique and shows information not available on any other map. At this point, I need to take a very quick detour into the question of how records are arranged. As you may know, our records are not isolated single items. As far as possible, they are grouped up to reflect how they were originally kept by the government bodies that made them. Our catalogue references reflect these provenance-based relationships between records. For the purposes of my talk, the most important aspect of this is the concept of the record series. A series just means a set of records of the same type and the same origin. One consequence of the fact that our archives are historical records grouped into series is that we don't have a separate map collection as such. Instead, maps are found among the records both systematically and unsystematically. I find it helpful to distinguish between three different categories of maps. The A whole series consisting of maps, which is quite common. B, individual maps as distinct records within series where most of the records are not maps. This is possible, but relatively uncommon. And finally, C, maps that form integral parts of files, volumes, or boxes of other records, most of which are te textual records. These are the ones that I call hidden maps. And it's worth mentioning at this point that most hidden maps are not catalogued individually, and very often they are not mentioned in catalogue entries at all. As this diagram illustrates, about four-fifths of our maps are hidden maps, my category C. The remaining fifth are non-hidden maps, my categories A and B. Now, these categories aren't completely clear-cut, and there is more than one sense in which maps can be thought of as hidden. So although there are map elements hidden in the backgrounds of these two paintings, the paintings themselves are each separate individual records in their own right, so these maps aren't hidden in quite the same way, although they are hidden in a, uh, a different sense. But this photograph of an exhibit at the 1951 Festival of Britain counts as a hidden map in both senses. The photo is just one item within a box of records, and the exhibit shown on it includes the map. A kind of special case are what we call extracted maps. These are several thousand maps that originally came to us at the National Archives as hidden maps mixed in with textual records, but have since been treated by a conservator and are now, are now stored separately. This example is an enclosure map of Southerton in Suffolk, dated 1804. The map was originally part of a written enclosure award held among the records of the Court of Common Pleas. The map was folded up and attached to this hefty stack of parchment, which is called a recovery roll, in a manner that made it unusable. And these large holes in the map show where it was joined onto the roll. As we now store this map with other extracted maps, separately from its original context, the textual record, it has essentially gone from being hidden inside a textual record to being an unhidden map in an artificial collection of unhidden maps. But to maintain the original context, there is a dummy sheet in the roll marking the place where the map used to be. And in our catalogue, the entry for the map explains that it's an extract and cross-refers to the catalogue entry for the document that it came from and vice versa. But now it's time to move on and look at some examples of maps that are still hidden. This 15th century map of Chertsey and Laleham is one of our earliest hidden maps. It's part of a cartulary, a book of important documents relating to Chertsey Abbey. The map was made in connection with a property dispute, and we have it because the cartulary was later deposited in the Exchequer Court. Now, it's easier to make sense of this medieval map by comparing bits of it with a later one. For instance, here is 
lay them at the top. You can see on the later map as well, and Healy's Chertsey Bridge, which you can see on the later map. The Abbey itself is shown prominently on the map. You can see that the door is open for visitors. But quickly fast-forwarding several centuries, but staying with the theme of land and property. In... 1898, the Great Northern Railway obtained approval to extend one of its branch lines north of Enfield, on the northern edge of London now, and just outside London in those days, towards Hertford, in Hertfordshire. The, um, the first section of the extension northwards eventually opened in 1910. Now, this map from one of the company's files shows the late Victorian Bicolour Estate just north of the station in Enfield. It's a wonderful thing for anyone researching the history of that area. Extending the line northwards involved building a viaduct along the eastern edge of the estate, so roughly speaking along here, and it involved paying compensation to some of the property owners, which is why this file exists, exists to begin with. The um, church shown prominently here was commissioned and paid for by our wealthy local widow named Mr. or Jana Twells. Moving further forward to the 1970s, these papers come from a file about proposals to give some historic London cinemas listed building status. This letter and news cutting refer to the New Victoria Theatre on Vauxhall Bridge Road. The file also includes this portion cut from an, an ordnance survey map and marked to show the location of the building. The cinema was indeed given grade two-star listed status in 1972. Now to look at the theme of defence and warfare for a while. This map depicts one of several sieges of the city of Turin in northern Italy. This siege, which was in 1640, was part of the um, Franco-Spanish War, which lasted for some years in the mid-17th century. And as I understand it, the situation was that the French were occupying the walled city, which was being besieged by the Spanish. But in turn, the Spanish were also being cut off by a surrounding French army. This map was sent to London by Sir Gilbert Talbot, who was the English diplomat based in Venice at the time. Talbot served in Italy for about 11 years, and apparently he ran up debts of £13,000, which was an awful lot of money in those days. But back in England, this little map dates from September 1850 and comes from correspondence of the Board of Ordnance, which dealt with military supplies and property. And it shows the extents of a small piece of land near Tilbury Fort in Essex, which belongs to the board. We have a lot of Victorian manuscripts, maps like this. Army war diaries from the two world wars are a particularly rich source of maps, some printed and others hand-drawn. This page comes from the diary of the 2nd 18th Battalion London Regiment, also called the Royal Irish Rifles, for the beginning of May 1918. They were participating in what's now called the 2nd Transjordan Raid, or sometimes the 2nd Action of S. Salt, which was part of the Palestine campaign. And at this time, our combined force of British, Australian, New Zealand and Indian troops attacked territory on the eastern side of the River Jordan that had been in the hands of German and Turkish forces. The war diary includes a sketch plan showing the battalion's location. This interests me because my great-great-uncle, Frederick Beemans, died in this campaign. Incidentally, the photo here of him and his mother on the screen isn't a government record, it belongs to my aunt. Freddie was in C Company, which was around here at the time. You can just about see it says C Company with an arrow. And it was on um, either the day when he was killed or the day after. It's not completely clear. The place name Sir Rise Hill shown on the map here was an unofficial one invented by the British troops. And I suspect it was probably a nasty surprise rather than a nice one. Initially, the Allied forces made significant t territorial gains during this raid. But by the 4th of May, they had been forced to retreat back across to the western side of the River Jordan. But although the Germans and Ottomans won this encounter, they 
probably lost more men than uh, the, the Allies did. This tracing paper plan shows where a bomb fell during the Second World War. It's part of an air raid damage file recording an investigation into the effects of the bombing of Aldwych in central London on the 30th of June 1944. We can see the exact spot where the bomb fell marked with a star near to Bush House. And here is the same bomb plotted on the Ministry of Home Security's bomb census map. And this is the Ministry's reporting form for this bomb, which is itself accompanied by another hidden map. This small tracing just shows the position of the bomb site in outline. One of the damaged buildings was Adastral House, which was part of the Air Ministry. This photograph of the effects of the bomb comes from Air Ministry records, as does this image showing an injured casualty receiving first aid. So we don't just have hidden maps, we have a lot of hidden photographs as well. My next few maps are connected with external relations or the UK's role in world affairs. This sketch map comes from colonial office correspondence. It shows part of the Potomac River and Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia in 1709. It features some local wildlife, including a duck, deer, a mountain goat, and this rather seasonal turkey in the enlargements. The map illustrates a petition sent to Queen Anne for a land grant to establish a Swiss settlement in the Shenandoah Valley. Now, the petition must have been unsuccessful because no permanent Swiss colony was established in this area as far as I've been able to find out. This map was drawn by Sir Har Harry Johnston, a renowned British diplomat, colonial, uh, colonial administrator and later scholar. It dates from 1886, long before he became a Sir, when he was still a young official based in what is now Nigeria, and he was writing back to the Foreign Office complaining of boredom. Johnston used this map to speculate about the outcome of the, on of the then ongoing scramble for Africa among the European colonial powers, and in particular on how this could work or it could be worked out to the UK's political and economic advantage. There's a great deal of difference between Johnston's speculations and what actually happened, and these are particularly notable in West Africa, where territory was actually divided between the French, British, Germans and Portuguese, as well as independent Liberia, in a much more complex way than he had anticipated. He has, as shown in the map here, generally anticipated a very large swathe as a British colony and a large swathe as a French colony. This item comes from a much later Foreign Office file. Now, this is what's sometimes called a emery map. It's a plan drawn from recollections rather than being surveyed formally or produced to scale. Although it looks innocuous, what it represents is quite deeply moving. It shows the layout of the camp at Auschwitz as of about 1944, as later described by a survivor of the Holocaust. Another major source of hidden maps relating to international affairs is treaties. For instance, this Russian language map comes from a treaty fixing the boundary between the Russian Empire and Afghanistan in 1879. Like many boundary treaties, it includes a list of the precise locations of the pillars constructed to mark the frontier physically. So these are pillars 9 and 10. And here are pillars 9 and 10 on the map. They're marked in Roman numerals, 9 there and 10 down there. This is also a treaty map, but very different in appearance. Plain and minimalist, it includes everything necessary to illustrate the text of the treaty, but nothing more. This particular treaty was signed in 1988 and defined the maritime boundary between the UK and Ireland. The map shows the boundary in the Irish Sea and into the Atlantic Ocean as a zigzag pattern of straight lines. An annex to the treaty records the boundary line more precisely by listing the um, geographical coordinates of each of its corners. And here are the signatures of Sir Geoffrey Howe for the UK and Brian Lenihan for Ireland, with the seal of the Irish government. This map relates to a rather different kind of boundary. It comes from a file of the Local Government Boundary Commission for England. In 1992, the boundary between the London boroughs of Barnet and Enfield was realigned. The old boundary, shown here in blue, cut across 
streets and individual properties in an unsatisfactory way. The new boundary, shown in yellow, was much more sensible. But it took a lot of effort for the Boundary Commission to find a solution that respected both the wishes and the practical needs of local people. A lot of people had very strong feelings about whether they wanted to live in Barnet or live in Enfield and wouldn't have liked if they'd ended up on the wrong side. More practically, there was a school for children with special educational needs quite near to the boundary and, and the authorities were very concerned not to try to separate that from the other social services in Enfield, I think it was. Our next two examples involve the use of maps in criminal trials. This is a box of depositions or witness statements from the Assizes held in Liverpool in November 1884. One of the that of a Russian sailor named Ernest Everstadt. I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's transcribed in two different ways in the record, so I'm not completely sure. And he, he was accused of murdering his English girlfriend, Elizabeth Hamlin. This plan of Ernest and Elizabeth's house was used in court. The prosecution's case hinged on the fact that some neighbourhood's children claimed to have witnessed the murder by looking underneath the back door. And here are the crucial backyard and the door. Again, it's not completely clear whether they mean the door to the back door to the backyard or the door from the backyard into the kitchen, from the witness statements that I looked at. But there was a large gap underneath the door in question, so their story was quite plausible. Ernest was convicted. Um, Home Office records show that the Russian consul protested about this and actually wrote a strongly worded letter claiming that the prosecution's case was too flimsy. But this appeal was unsuccessful and Ernest was hanged. And this um, sheet, sheet on the screen is the record that the um, death sentence has been carried out. A less sensational case was the trial of Edwin Ellis for fraud at the Old Bailey in 1951. Alice's family owned a factory, and he was accused of systematically defrauding the inland revenue by fiddling his employees' travel expenses over a number of years. This list compares some of his employees' tra travelling distances with reasonable travelling costs and the, um, and the um, rather large amounts that Ellis actually claimed for. For good measure, the prosecution also annotated an ordnance survey map to show the employees' homes in relation to the factory. And the vast mismatches between the known distances and the claimed amounts convinced the jury that Ellis was guilty. This cartoon comes from the records of the Treasury solicitor. It shows King George IV and his estranged wife, Queen Caroline, in 1820. And they are literally slinging mud at one another. At least I hope it's mud and not something even less pleasant. George wanted to divorce Caroline, which was difficult in those days, even for kings. And the way he went about it was that he put a bill before Parliament to end their marriage on the grounds of her alleged adultery with one of her servants. This bill effectively placed her on trial before the House of Lords. The scandalous proceedings were something of a gift to the burgeoning mass media of the day. This map of the uh, imaginary green baglands, which comes from the same Treasury solicitor record as the cartoon on the previous slide, is a complex satire on the scandal surrounding the trial. The name green baglands comes from the green bags, which were two sealed bags of evidence against Caroline. Now, some of the map's features are quite straightforward. For instance, the boot-shaped country of lies at the top there is Italy, which is where Caroline's supposed lover came from and where the adultery was alleged to have taken place. But there are actually many um, obscure allusions to other satires, such as a poem called The Matrimonial Ladder and another version, which is a doctored version of them singing a song of sixpence. Both the press at the time and the public at large generally took the Queen's side. George's bill was withdrawn from Parliament and the couple remained nominally married until Caroline's death the following year. My last few examples come from records relating to intellectual property rights. 
This piece of fabric is our registered design. It was registered with the Board of Trade in 1875 by Arthur Fletcher & Co, a Scottish firm of dyers and calico printers. At the centre of the design is a map of Australia and New Zealand, but the map covers a relatively small proportion of the cloth. Surrounding it are eight large vignettes, alternately depicting ships and landmarks from the city of Melbourne. The border is a pattern of acorns and oak leaves, in keeping with the taste of the period, and making good use of the newly popular synthetic dyes. A rather odd feature is that life-size tape measure around the edge of the map. This item forms part of the records of a different way of securing intellectual property right, copyright registration. It's a design for a calendar that was registered for copyright purposes in 1901. It's covered in images of the British Empire, including these animals from various parts of the globe. Perhaps inevitably, it also includes one of the greatest symbols of empire, a map of the world with British possessions coloured in the traditional pink. This is another copyright registration. It appears to be a racing game between two players sending ships across the Atlantic Ocean from British ports to New York City. This map is presumably the board, and it features icebergs to serve as obstacles. The copyright form is dated the 2nd of May 1912, less than three weeks after the sinking of the Titanic, which obviously inspired the idea for the game. In the immediate aftermath of the disaster, we might have expected to see a more sensitive treatment of it and a racing game. And in fact, for that reason, this map is probably one of the most shocking ones that I think I've ever seen. Fortunately, there is no evidence that the game was ever actually produced. I mean, whoever would have wanted to play it, I can't really imagine. A much more conventional and useful map, also registered for copyright in 1912, is this one of the coal fields of South Wales. But I could go on. I said earlier that most hidden maps are not mentioned in our online catalogue. Most have actually not been catalogued at all, but some are inclu included in our hard copy catalogues. We have been working for many years to convert our legacy data, which is a fancy way of describing the various hard copy catalogue entries for maps. So we've, we've been working to convert this legacy data into online catalogue entries for quite a while. We've now managed to add most of these entries to the online catalogue, but there are still thousands more left, including most of the entries relating to hidden maps. We'll get there eventually. In the meantime, colleagues have inevitably found and noted hidden maps during other cataloguing projects, not specifically about maps. For instance, a few years ago, our welcome-funded projects to catalogue Royal Navy Surgeons' Journals revealed quite a few previously unknown maps. This one shows the city of Shanghai in China. And this fine, delicate one shows part of the coast of New Zealand. This map was uncovered as part of the Through a Lens project to digitise the Colonial Office photographic collection and make the images available on the Flickr website. A few of the albums contain the odd drawing or map as well as photographs, and this map of Malaya is one of them. An ongoing volunteer project to catalogue the W.E. Haywood collection of railway miscellanea has also described many maps. And this map was uncovered during a project that involved cataloguing and digitising government correspondence with selected portal units. For the final part of the talk, I will just give you a few hints on finding maps and plans among our records. The most useful tool for finding maps at the National Archives is now Discovery, our online catalogue. But there are also various paper-based finding aids available upstairs in the Map and Large Documents reading room. Most of the entries from our published map catalogues and card index have already been added to Discovery, but as I mentioned, some hidden maps are catalogued in the paper catalogues but not described online yet. We also have a summary catalogue, sometimes called the Summary K 
calendar, which is a set of binders that give very brief descriptions of maps, m mostly hidden maps, that are not mentioned in any of the other catalogues as yet. For maps that are catalogued by sheet number, you can often use index maps as well to help you identify the right sheet. And here are some of the paper catalogues. Published volume, part of a typescript list, and an index card. It's not normally effective to treat electronic catalogues just like Google or other search engines. This is partly because many, many records are not catalogued in detail, and partly because they might not be described exactly how you expect. In fact, the more flexible you can be about your search strategy, the more likely you are to find what you want. To my mind, there are two different ways to find things in archives. The first one is by keyword search. You put in what you want, such as a place name, and the computer finds things that match. This can be a very quick means of finding records if you approach it in the right way, but it works best for finding maps and other records that have been catalogued in detail. As staff, quite a lot of our work behind the scenes has gone into making this kind of keyword searching easier and more effective. The other approach is to use archival logic. If, for instance, you wanted to find maps of Jamaica when it was a British colony, you would try looking in at colonial office records relating to Jamaica, because that's where they are most likely to be. This is obviously more difficult and time-consuming than doing keyword searching, but it can find you things that haven't been catalogued in detail. In fact, as many hidden maps are not catalogued at all, the only way to find them is by using archival logic and a bit of luck or serendipity. But I definitely recommend that you try both approaches, because each one will find you things that the other one will miss. As a first step, it's nearly always worth trying a search for entries containing the name of the place that you want and either the word map or the word plan. I find that constructing what's called a Boolean search, such as a place name and open bracket map or plan close bracket, is much more effective. If you put the and and the or into capitals, the search engine treats them as instructions rather than words to find. You can also restrict the search to a particular date range if you want to. It's important to remember that place names can change over time and have different forms or spellings. Quite often, more than one place has the same name, such as Perth in Scotland and Perth in Australia. Especially on smaller scale maps, so more zoomed out maps, the catalogue description won't include the name of every town and village depicted on the map, just the name of the country county or general area shown on the map. There isn't a clear distinction between a plan and a large-scale map, as I mentioned earlier, so it is worth including both, both terms in your search quite often. But do bear in mind that some words, and plan is one of them, have multiple meanings. And if the search engine can't distinguish between different meanings of words like plan and survey, you may get some search results that aren't strictly relevant. For instance, the catalog description here refers to dental survey, which is nothing at all to do with surveying maps. And although the title of this file includes the word maps, its record about maps and aerial photographs as a topic. The file doesn't actually include any maps or photos in it. I checked, I was all hopeful, but there weren't any. Here's a real example of a search. If I try a search for maps of Bosom, which is a place in West Sussex, and I want to restrict it to date range 1830 to 1850, I get four results. One of these is this entry for a file from the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. The um, entry notes that the file includes a map. If you want to know what the other three results are, I suggest that you go and try the search for yourselves afterwards. But they, they aren't hidden maps, they are maps in separate sets of maps. And, anyway, and here is the um, hidden map. There was a court case over the construction of a new carriage road shown on the map, and the court case was disputed and went to a appeal, which is why it's in the records of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. I think this map is a particularly nice one, which is why I wanted to include it. It's actually possible to do some quite complicated searches using just the basic search box in Discovery. For instance, if you want a map of Jersey and the Channel Islands, you can set up a Boolean search to exclude maps of New Jersey in the USA 
by using double quotation marks and the instruction not in capitals. It's usually best to start with a broad search and narrow it down if you get too many matches, but if you want to, you can be more specific with your search terms as well. If you're not confident with constructing Boolean searches for yourself, you can use the boxes on Discovery's advanced search screen to construct one for you. You can also use the advanced search for some other more sophisticated options, such as supplying subjectors, and there is a subject folder for maps and plans, or restricting your search to specific series or to the records of specific government departments. Again, the example here, HO192, is for the record series of air raid damage files, which I showed you an example of earlier. I really do recommend having a play with Discovery for yourselves, as that's really the only way to get to grips with it. And it, it isn't really possible to explain to somebody how to use it effectively unless they're actually trying it out for themselves. When seeking out hidden maps in particular, bear in mind that catalogue entries in Discovery may mention them briefly in passing. Typically, they will say something like, with maps or with plan. Only if you're very lucky will there be any further indication of what those particular hidden maps actually show. Although you may be able to work it out from the description of the rest of the record. But as I said earlier, many hidden maps are still completely undiscovered as yet. The only way to find them is to open likely looking files or boxes and see whether any maps fall out. They don't usually fall out literally, I hasten to add. They are more likely to be secu securely within pockets at the back of the file or volume or tucked into envelopes. Many maps are larger than the volume or file when unfolded but others are, in, are just indistinguishable from any other page until you start to read through the pages in the documents for yourself. For instance, I found this sketch map of Greece in 1943 folded up inside an envelope in a Special Operations Executive file. I think the envelope even said map on the outside, whereas this map which shows claims to the territory of Antarctica in about 1953, possibly up to 1956, um, this, th this map was just um, threaded directly onto the treasury tag, just like any other sheet of paper in the file, and he wouldn't have known it was there unless you'd gone through the files quite systematically. And I'm almost finished, but just a quick final point. If you do find an uncatalogued map within a document, you can help us and other researchers by letting us know what you found. Map reporting forms are available at some of the inquiry desks, or you can contact us via our website. If you wish to, you can also investigate the tagging feature in Discovery to add a tag noting the existence of the map to the catalogue entry for that document. And I think that's a good place to stop. So thank you very much for listening, and if you do go looking for hidden maps, I hope you find some good ones, and that you tell us about them. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.